frames, I found passengers. The first was Duffil. I remember him because his name later became a verb, Molesworth's, then mine. He was just ahead of me in the line at Platform 7 at Victoria, Continental Departures. He was old and his clothes were far too big for him, so he might have left in a hurry and grabbed the wrong clothes, or perhaps he'd just come out of the hospital. He walked, treading his trouser cuffs to rags, and carried many oddly shaped parcels wrapped in string and brown paper, more the luggage of an incautiously busy bomber than of an intrepid traveller. The tags were fluttering in the draft from the track, and each gave his name as R. Duffil, and his address as Splendid Palace Hotel Istanbul. We would be travelling together. A satirical widow in a severe veil might have been more welcome, and if her satchel was full of gin and an inheritance, so much the better. But there was no widow. There were hikers returning continentals with Harrod shopping bags, salesmen, French girls with sour friends, and grey-haired English couples who appeared to be embarking with armloads of novels on expensive literary adulteries. None would get farther than Ljubljana. Duffil was for Istanbul. I wondered what his excuse was. I was doing a bunk myself. I had nailed my colors to the mast. I had no job. No one would notice me falling silent, kissing my wife, and boarding the 1530 alone. The train was rumbling through Clapham. I decided the travel was flight and pursuit in equal parts. But by the time we had left the brick terraces and coal yards and the narrow back gardens of the South London suburbs, and were passing Dulwich College's playing fields, children lazily exercising in neckties. I was tuned to the motion of the train and had forgotten the newspaper billboards I had been reading all morning. Baby Kristin, woman to be charged, and plan to free stab girl aged nine, none lettered, novelist vanishes, and just as well. Then, past a row of semi-detached houses, we entered a tunnel, and after travelling a minute in complete darkness, we were shot wonderfully into a new setting, open meadows, cows cropping grass, farmers haying in blue jackets. We had surfaced from London, a grey, sodden city that lay underground. At Seven Oaks there was another tunnel, another glimpse of the pastoral, fields of pawing horses, some kneeling sheep, crows on an oast house, and a swift sight of a settlement of prefab houses out one window. Out the other window, a Jacobean farmhouse and more cows. That is England. The suburbs overlap the farms. At several level crossings, the country lanes were choked with cars, backed up for a hundred yards. The train passengers were gloating vindictively at the traffic and seemed to be murmuring, Stop, you bitches! The sky was old. Schoolboys in dark blue blazers carrying cricket bats and school bags, their socks falling down, were smirking on the platform at Tunbridge. We raced by them, taking their smirks away. We didn't stop, not even at the larger stations. These I contemplated from the dining car over a sloshing carton of tea, while Mr. Duffil, similarly hunched, kept an eye on his parcels and stirred his tea with a doctor's tongue depressor. Past the hop fields that give Kent a Mediterranean tangle in September, past a gypsy camp, fourteen battered caravans, each one with its own indestructible pile of rubbish just outside the front door, past a farm, and forty feet away the perimeter of a housing estate, with lots of interesting clothes on the line, plus fours, long johns, snapping black brassiers, the pennants of bonnets and socks, all forming an elaborate message, like signal flags on the distressed convoy of those houses. The fact that we didn't stop gave this English train an air of hurrying purpose. 
we sped to the coast for the channel crossing. But it was a false drama. Duffil, at his pitching table, ordered a second cup of tea. The black train yards of Ashford loomed and tumbled past, and we were crossing the hummocky grass of Romney Marsh, headed towards Folkestone. By then I had left England behind. So had the other passengers. I returned to my compartment to hear Italians raising their voices, perhaps deriving courage from the assurance that we were at the edge of England. Some Nigerians, who until that moment had been only a quartet of bobbing headgear, two Homburgs, a turban, and a beehive wig, became vocal in Yoruba, seeming to spell out each word they used, smacking their lips when they completed a syllable. Each passenger migrated to his own language, leaving the British muttering and averting their eyes. Oh, look, said a woman, unfolding a handkerchief on her lap. It's so neat and orderly, said the man at the window. Fresh flowers. The woman gently bandaged her nose with a handkerchief and snorted on one side, then the other.